We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha to the Layman's Lounge podcast, which is a ministry of thelaymanslounge.com. It's where we exist to bring everyday theology for everyday life. So we're talking at the store, at the cubicle, at church, in the pew, um, in your bed, in the kitchen, and such. Um, so I'm pretty excited today to have Mark Roque. Mark is an educator, author, philosopher, storyteller. I want mm. you to get that one. And a and big-time implicational thinker, which is uh, all but lost art. Uh, he's the director of Reality Bites and part of the Thinking Faith Network based in Leeds. Yeah. In the UK. We'll be uh, linking all these things in some of his videos at, at the, in the show notes. And he's most uh, recently authored a course called yeah. Slave Chronicles and Dangerous Beliefs, Discipling Others Through Creative Storytelling. So uh, I was first made aware, Mark, of you and the storytelling and the implicational thinking when the most learned and the most kind brother, Steve Bishop, passed along mm. to me one of your videos. And at first I was like, oh, like evangelism. Oh, I'm so I'm so weary about evangelism and, and programs because I like to just speak from the overflow of my heart, but I'm not sure how effective it is. And anyway, so when I I used to read books like that all the time, but I don't know, there's a disconnect. So but when you when you started when I started hearing and I, I was getting stirred. And then so I, I sat on those videos a few days as uh, once Steve sent them to me. And then I was reading um, an article article from Craig Bartholomew from their new magazine that's part of KLC, the Kirby Lane Center, which we'll also link. And he actually referenced you in there. Um, he said, this is what Craig said. I'm most grateful that in our circles, we have someone like Mark who has developed the Kuyperian tradition creatively in relation to evangelism. We must never lose sight of this. The breadth of the gospel that the Kuyperian tradition opens up is truly good news. Evangelion, and it needs to be sounded forth continually, end quote. So brother Mark, can you please tell us a bit about yourself, your background, your faith? Hmm. Well, thanks, Jason. It's really fantastic to be able to talk uh, to some of the, your your listeners in Hawaii. Um, I grew up in England uh, and I grew up in a non-Christian family. My father was a big fan of Bertrand Russell, who is a famous English philosopher, who was a famous atheist. And so for me, um, I had no background in the Christian faith. But when I went to university to study French and German, which had been my passion, I had some quite uh, amazing experiences of, of Christ and um, when I was studying philosophy, actually. And these experiences persuaded me that I should stop being an atheist and start, start to believe in Jesus. So because I was studying philosophy, I was so excited when I met someone called Richard Russell, who is also a very good friend of Steve Bishop who told me that you can actually do philosophy in a Christian way. And this came as a, as a well, as, as a great surprise to me because I do love philosophy and I love studying it. And he told me that about 
reformational philosophy that we associate with Kuiper and uh, Doyavid. And but I've taken on those ideas very much in my own English way. And I want to use those ideas to teach people about God, but also to communicate the Christian faith in as interesting a way as I can. And so one of my great passions is how do we have good conversations about God in, in a very secular world? England is quite different from North America in many ways. Um, but, but I think we, we live in a very secular world. In Yorkshire, where I live, the north of England, I think only something like 3% of people attend church, Jason. So we have a massive job on our hands, which is to communicate the faith. And I think a lot of people know nothing about the Christian faith mm -hmm. or have been put off by it, mm -hmm. sadly, mm -hmm. by a very kind of dirge-like you know, singing of hymns or church experience that is extremely off-putting. So, you know, we're, we're up against that. And it, it is very, very challenging. Yeah, yeah. Dirge-like, to be sure. <laughs> That's funny. Thanks for calling the spade the spade. So why, why did you study philosophy at university? Well, when I started, I was studying French and German. And to be honest, I, I realized I would have to read so many books, it would just drive me crazy and mad. And I have to be sitting in front of a dictionary. Uh, and it just kind of became too much of a burden. And I remember meeting somebody who talked to me about Nietzsche and Jean-Paul Sartre. And I thought these people were footballers. No, I, I realized they weren't footballers. They were famous <laughs> philosophers. And I was thinking, I'd like to read some Nietzsche. I'd like to read a little bit of Jean-Paul Sartre. <laughs> And because I can read French and German, I'll, I'll have a go. And it was reading those particular thinkers, Sartre and Nietzsche, that made me think this is something I want to study. And so I was a very, very naughty, bad boy. Uh, I'm ashamed to say this. I failed my first year and because I was extremely lazy. I was lying in bed being a very bad boy. And... Um, I, I didn't get any any fees. I had to pay my way for my first year. But my mum, my mother and father were very kind to me and they allowed me to study philosophy. And it was then that I became a Christian. And then I met Richard Russell, who said to me, you know, you can do philosophy in a Christian way, mm. Mm. Jason. And that really, that excited me a lot. And um, because most of the people I talked to, Jason, said to me, philosophy is just a profane, you know? Right. It's just something that you shouldn't be interested in. You should be concerned about the Bible and maybe a bit of theology, but philosophy is really dark and intrinsically evil and profane. Right. And people who study philosophy will soon lose their faith. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Richard Russell introduced me to the whole tradition we associate with Abraham Kuyper and philosophers like Doi Viet and Vollenhoven. And I found it very exciting to, to read some of their books. Yeah. So I, I hope that gives you a little bit of a flavor. Yeah. So how did you, can you tell us about how you started teaching philosophy to teenagers and maybe putting some of the feet, putting feet 
to you know the the christian tradition itself yeah well <clears throat> i had to teach philosophy uh to well you know 17 and 18 year olds and i was it was a course and i had to teach about plato about a hume about um bertrand russell you know and i found Doivit's philosophy very very simple and i'm going to give you a really simple way of teaching david hume who was an seven, uh, 18th century english philosopher and i had to teach his text and there's a story about the columbine killers that you might have heard of where one of the columbine killers wrote in his diary only maths and physics are true everything else is very rude word mm -hmm. is a load of rubbish mm. and this is a, a brilliant summary of what david hume taught that only maths and physics give you the truth mm. and everything else is just a human invention mm. and what's brilliant about that story is we all know he went on to murder 13 people mm -hmm. so there's something very compelling about connecting David Hume and his philosophy to the Columbine killers. It is yeah. shocking, but if you believe that only maths and the hard sciences give us truth, then the obvious logical conclusion is that ethics is just a load of rubbish. If you think murder is wrong, then you are not being rational. Mm -hmm. And if you follow reason, which is what David Hume said we should do, you end up with this horrible view of the world, which says that we can say one plus one equals two, and we can say that dogs are a certain kind of creature, but we can't say that genocide is evil, because yeah. that's merely your opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is where philosophy becomes very, very important. Mm -hmm. Because in England, lots of people will say this on the radio, you know, tell me the facts, that's the science bit. Yeah. But your opinion, it's just your opinion. Yeah, yeah. So philosophy gives you immediately a way of thinking about a much richer view of the world. Mm -hmm. And for me, uh, aesthetics and morals is not just merely an opinion. There is truth to be found in morals. There's truth to be found in aesthetics, in economics. I don't just see the world in terms of facts on the one hand versus opinions. Mm. So I think that's a really simple way of getting at philosophy. I, ho I hope that's clear what I've said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ideas have consequences to be sure. So can you, and this is like, you know, this is where, this is the stuff that I've heard you on. And it's, it's so, it's so compelling. I hope, I hope we squeeze as much out of you as we can knowing that it's like 10 45 PM over there. But why did you start like collecting and telling stories? Like where, like why, why this, where do you go for the, for this fodder and, and why? Well, I was teaching a lesson to about 11 year olds and they were not listening to me. So I told them a story about an American woman called Hetty Green, who was the meanest woman ever to have lived, according to the Guinness Book of Records. But she was so mean that she wouldn't spend any money on, on the electric bill. And so she was smelt terrible. She had terrible body odor. She stunk like a skunk. 
even though she was worth millions and millions of pounds. And the stories about her son borrowed a toboggan or a sledge, I don't know what you call it in North America, and he went downhill, broke his leg, and she dragged him to the Porpoise Hospital in New York because she didn't want to pay any medical fees. And the director of the hospital recognized her as the wealthiest woman in America and said, I'm sorry, you can't come here. So, <laughs> sorry. I'm, Thank sorry. you for the American sorry. accent. <laughs> sorry, I apologize. I'll, I'll speak in a much more proper British accent from now on. But please no, please the, weave in an American accent as yeah. much as you can. That's the highlight well, of my day. Well, it wasn't very good, was it? But um, the point about the story is that she ended, her son ended up having his leg amputated. And it was all to do with her meanness. And then I asked the class, what did she serve? What was her God? Mm. And we had such a brilliant conversation, simply mm. about what we would call idolatry, making money into your God. And so from that little story, I was able to teach them a great deal about the idea of what is an idol? What is a false god? And I think that's a really interesting way of talking about faith. Mm. That when you have a god, you sacrifice to it. Mm. I talk about Julius Caesar, who boasted, you know, the famous general of Rome, he boasted that he had murdered, killed. He was responsible for killing a thousand, a million people in Gaul, France, and enslaving a million others. And quite literally, Julius Caesar could make huge amounts of money by selling slaves after a battle. And he could put, he could get his slaves to put the bags of gold under his bed. And that's just a little vignette of saying, what was his faith? What, what did he serve? What was his worldview? I mean, I, I wouldn't use that with a teenager, yeah. but I'm trying to get them to think about these hidden beliefs mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. shape people like Julius Caesar, mm -hmm. that shape a woman like Hetty Green. Mm -hmm. And when Hetty Green died, funnily enough, she was worth $200 million. That was in 1916. Wow. And yet she was so mean, constantly doing things that reflected her faith in money. Mm -hmm. Money was everything. She was a, a penny pincher. Mm -hmm. And so what excited me, Jason, was that these young people were listening to every word. And when I told them how she died, that she was sipping a cup of tea and she spat it out and said to her friend, this tea is horrible because it's full of the expensive full cream milk your maid is ruining you. She should be buying the cheap milk. And she had a stroke on the spot. <laughs> and it, it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's true. But you see, it's that, that's, that's what gets young people's attention. Yeah. yeah. If I was to start telling them all about theology and uh, this, this and that. Theology. <laughs> Oh, yes, let me tell you about this theory. No one, no one would listen, right? <laughs> You're so true. And, and the, other one I, the other story I think is, is if you want to share your, your, your faith, I was sharing my faith with a, a builder and lovely man. And he said to me, he said to me, Mark, you've got such a wonderful voice. 
I said, I, I, thank you so much. And I was a bit rude about people in other parts of the world. I said, yes, I speak the Queen's English. <laughs> and, and my friend is from Iran and he said, oh, you speak such beautiful English. It, it's a pleasure to listen to you. And I said, I want to tell you a story, young Jalal. <laughs> I said, have you heard about this naked man, a fakir, who was living on a bed of nails? And, and Jalal, he put his hammer down, you know, what, what are you talking about? I want to tell you about this man. He was living on a bed of nails. Why do you, why do you think he was living on a bed of nails? And he said to me, I, I, I don't know. Right behind me was another lad listening into the conversation. He was listening to every word. And I said, let me tell you what my cousin Bill would say. My cousin Bill would say, this man is a nutter. He should basically get off the bed of nails and go and buy a proper bed and buy a motorbike because he's a fool. And then another friend of mine would say, whatever works for you. You know, if you want to learn a bed of nails, oh, I so respect you. And the third view is you should lie on a bed of nails because the only way to find God is to torture your body. And then I said to Jalal, would you like me to tell you what the Bible says? And he said, yes, I'd love to, I'd love to hear. Mm. The scriptures tells us that this man is a fool because he can never earn his way into God's kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's only when you believe in Christ that he was nailed on a cross so that you don't have to live on a bed of nails. Mm -hmm. And he was listening to every word I said. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, he said, I still think you've got a lovely voice. <laughs> but the point I'm making is that it's not about having a lovely voice. It's having, that's an intriguing story, isn't it? Yeah. And I also told him that one of the most famous missionaries who ever lived was called Sundar Singh. And he was a, an Indian Sikh who had a very powerful experience of Jesus. And he went to be a missionary in Tibet. And he was the man who spoke to this naked fakir. And he said to him, I want to tell you about Jesus, what he's done for you, what he's done for me. And he told him, how he had made a vow that he was going to kill himself if God didn't reveal himself to him. Mm. And that very night, when he was going to kill himself, Jesus appeared to him in a dream and said, I am Jesus who died for you. Wow. Mm. And Sundar said, no, no, no. I won't believe in anyone. I won't believe in Jesus. I believe in it. But then Jesus said, you were seeking me. And because of this incredible experience, he then became a missionary, a wonderful missionary. And I told this to Jalal and he was listening because it's the story that is yeah. gripping. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, did you get the idea? Oh yeah, no, I got it. I, it's so good. I want more stories. And I'm like, I want some rat stories. I want some, you know, but we'll get it. So you've got this unusual approach to evangelism. So is it like, in that context, you did like a one-on-one -on -one, and other times you're sharing at schools that are like not Christian schools. Can you give us a, like yeah. your, your unusual approach? Yeah. Well, what I do is I find stories that people find intriguing. I find stories that are um, fascinating. So I, I've got one story about a mafia hitman. 
And I do this in schools to non-Christian young people, and they love it because I basically tell them about a man called the Beast, and they love the nicknames. And the Beast uh, was responsible for ordering the execution of more than a thousand people. Mm. And even the Mafia found him uh, very dark because he actually ordered the execution of innocent women and children. Mm. And his story is so fascinating because it raises the issue of what is evil, right? And so what I do is I talk them through five different ways of looking at evil. And because I've earthed it in the life of the beast and then the pig, who is another mafiosi, who basically served the beast, the pig served the beast and created mayhem in Sicily. Hmm. And these stories are very, very intriguing because the question is, what is evil? So what I do in my lecture is I explain to them the idea that some people say it's because you've got a bad karma. The person who was killed did something in the previous life. That's why they're suffering. That's why they're dying. And other people say that the mafia has no free will because he's just a machine. Mm. I quote Richard Dawkins. And I explain the view that says evil actually comes from God because everything comes out of God. So evil is part of God. And as they're listening to these different interpretations, they are really fascinated. Mm. And then I explain to them a Buddhist view. I'm not saying it's the only Buddhist view, but it's the view that you find in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And I've studied that book very carefully. And it says that human beings don't exist. Our minds don't exist. I know it sounds odd, but evil is an illusion because humans don't actually exist. And I'm explaining these views to these young people and they're, they're absolutely fascinated. So then what I then do is I talk to them about C.S. Lewis mm. and his view of evil, that there's a battle between Christ and the devil. Mm. And they're listening, they're, they're, not, they're not getting angry with me. Yeah. So I'm trying to help them to understand what evil is. Yeah. I'm basically taking a worldview approach. Yeah. I'm using interesting stories and i'm using drama i talk about frank sinatra i'm sure you've heard of frank sinatra frank was a great singer you know and i wish i could sing as well as frank but he was also very very in with leading mafia hitmen so i kind of get them to think about why was frank involved with so many mm. mafia people mm. and what it creates, it creates an atmosphere in the young people of seeking, of wanting to understand. And that's something they hardly ever get in school. Yeah. yeah. Because schools don't really go near these issues. Yeah. But yeah. Because I've explained a Hindu view, a Buddhist yeah. view, what you might call a pantheist view, yeah. a, an atheist view, I'm making them think, I'm giving them real education. And then I talk about the fact that I do believe in the devil, and it's by studying the mafia, mm. by studying human trafficking, that you see that human beings can do unbelievably awful, destructive, evil mm. things. How do we make sense of evil? Mm. So what I'm doing is I'm educating them. Mm. In my view, I'm doing them a massive favor of explaining these different views to them. 
which they find really, really yeah. interesting. They've never heard anyone explain to them what the Bhagavad Gita has to say. I, yeah. I, I'll tell them what it says. <laughs> I tell them that the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I've read these books. Right, right. I know what they say. And all I do is I explain those views. And then I say, this is what I think as a Christian. And mm. they're listening to every word. On one occasion, I did some serious uh, praying and fasting because I don't ignore that. And at the end of this conference, eight young boys came up to me, you know, really beefy lads with tattoos, you know, hard as nails. And they wanted to talk to me for 20 minutes all mm. about Jesus mm. because of my mafia lecture. <laughs> so, you know, it's not bad, is it? No, it's sto a story's a bit cheeky, isn't it? Sorry? The story's cheeky. a bit cheeky, isn't it? That's it. You, you've got it. I was trying to do my British accent. Maybe that was better. No, no, that's very, you, you've got it. You, I don't know what, I don't know what, I don't know what, what North Americans mean by the word cheeky because it, I, it's. We don't say that. I thought you that. You don't was, say it. We don't say cheeky, but I just heard it actually from someone else who you were talking to. And he pretty much said that same thing. It's a bit cheeky, like, like quir quirky or like. Quirky. That's it. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good word quirky you thanks jason you've nailed it for me that's, that's what I, people will hear what my approach they say you like quirky things yeah um and i think the quirkier the better yeah no i i've already tried to lift you know like i was saying for i've already tried to you know I, I i teach a little bit here and there and i'm trying to like lift just straight steal some of these things because yeah. it's genius and I, we'll get to it in a little bit of you know, script and resource. And, and that's actually, here's one thing right here. So you've actually written a course about human trafficking and that's helpful in the mm. sense of resources as well as an example. Can you, can you share, share that with us? Yeah. Um, this very much came um, from doing a conference in schools. I want your listeners to understand what happens. I've got about a hundred young people. Okay. 18 year olds and 17 year olds, a hundred people and I have to basically keep their attention for an hour and a half so what I what I do is I tell them about human trafficking and then I connect it to the culture in which we live and I tell them about a man called Tarzan and, they, and I even I, I even he's a Ukrainian hit man Talking like this, that you like very much. I'm coming from Ukraine, trafficking young girls for profits. And I do that voice, and they love it. They like that. It's just funny. I explain that he said that he could he could buy a girl, yeah, for ten thousand dollars and make his money back in a week, and then everything was just profit. So I tell them this story and I say, this is really going on. There's lots of people doing things like this. Even nice English middle-class people mm. are making money out of trafficking um, children and women. And it is deeply shocking. Yeah. I say, how do we make sense of this? How do we understand what's going on? And then what I say is I say, should he follow his heart? <laughs> and they, 
they, they realize I'm attacking a particular view that yeah. says, follow your heart, follow your instincts, follow your heart, you know, be true to yourself. Mm. So I'm challenging that view through the story. So the story gives me something that is very concrete. They know it's going on because they're not, they're not mugs. They know these things are going on, that people are buying and selling young women and children, and they're making huge amounts of money out of it. Mm -hmm. And what I then do is I connect it to a philosopher called Thomas Hobbes, who was born in 1588, the year when we English sorted out the Spanish Armada, uh, and we sorted them out. And if we hadn't have sorted them out, we'd all be speaking Espanol. Sí, señor. Hey, caramba. So we, we speak English because our lads sorted out Ferdinand. Do you see? Are you with me? Yeah. He was born that year, Thomas Hobbes. And his philosophy very much says everything is physical. You are a selfish calculating machine. The only value you have is the value the market gives you. So if you're fat, you're worth $7.99. But if you're thin, $3.99. That's the only value you have is what the market will give you because you're just a thing. Mm. And this leads into the idea that we can make people into economic objects. Mm. Mm. So it's very simple. I explain that view to them. And then I show them how this view influences ordinary people, not just the human traffickers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I give an example of a woman who spent a half a million pounds. That's a million dollars on plastic surgery for herself. And I say, she's living in this story where everything is about money. Everything is about, you know, understanding everything in terms of the physical and money. And they really get this. And I talk about how big football clubs turn football players into commodities. And so I say to them, I want you to understand this mindset, this way of looking at the world, because it's incredibly influential all over the world. Mm-hmm. There are people in the third world who are in factories treated as if they're just things yeah. by the factory owners. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk to you about human trafficking. And they're really listening. Mm-hmm. And I just do the same thing. I look at it from different angles. Mm-hmm. And they're really fascinated. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's because what I'm doing is I'm educating them about the worldviews through the stories. I don't begin with the worldview. I always begin with the concrete story. So good. It's so, much more interesting, you know. Sorry. Sorry, Jason. No, no, it's fine. There's like a two second delay. So that's why you might think I'm talking over you. But why? So no, it, why do you go out? Why do you go out on the streets of Leeds and talk to non-Christian students? Well, it's because I've found that, I, because I've got, I've got so many good stories in the locker. What that means in, in England is I've got stories just at the tip of my fingers. I go out there to serve hot chocolate and tea and coffee and sandwiches. And students come out of what we call a pub where they've been drinking. And they're, they're very friendly. And they, they come and talk to me. 
And I just used my stories. And the story that I used with lots of the students is the island where they worship the Duke of Edinburgh. And it's an extremely funny story about these islanders about a thousand miles west of Australia, where they actually worship His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, who sadly died a few months ago. But they can't believe this. And I just say, what do you think about worshipping His Royal Highness, Prince Philip? And, and, they, and this is works the world. Is they look at me like this, just say it again. So there's an island, okay, I'll make this story, where there used to be cannibals on the island. You with me? Cannibals. And then the first missionaries to arrive were eaten by the cannibals. And then many of the islanders became Christians. They started to believe in Jesus. But in the 1960s, they saw the queen with her husband, his royal highness, Prince Philip. And they came to believe that he was the son of God and he was the Messiah. You know, what do you, and, and they gather around me, you know, and they say, this is, they come, come over here. We're talking about the Duke of Edinburgh. And they're fascinated. I said, yeah, he's a very grumpy old man. This was before he, you know, passed away. It's a very grumpy man. He was once kind of filmed um, swearing at all the journalists, <laughs> using very, very bad language, because he is actually quite grumpy. <laughs> and then I say, now, this might shock you, but I don't put my faith in Prince Philip. You know, he's a, you know, I'm sure he's a wonderful husband to the Queen. Great. I'm not having a, I'm not having a pop. But I don't put my faith in Prince Philip. And when I'm on my deathbed, I will not be praying to His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh. And, and, and they're like these, they're like, what? What are you talking about? Just mad and crazy. And I say, can I give you some advice? And, and they've, they've had a few drinks. I say, when you are about to die, don't put your faith in the Duke of Edinburgh. Put your faith in Jesus. Because he came back from the dead. Mm. And he can really answer your prayers. Mm. But the Duke of Edinburgh can't. Mm. Mm. So it, it, it's a very simple gospel presentation about announcing the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But because I've begun with the Duke of Edinburgh and the cheekiness, the madness of an island where they actually worship him, they find it very interesting. And because they find it so interesting, Jason, they're thinking, right? They're thinking about what's going on here. And this means I'm able to speak some truth into their minds mm -hmm. because the story is very subversive. Mm -hmm. Because you and I know it's ridiculous and foolish <laughs> to put your faith in a grumpy old duke. Why would you do that? <clears throat> and I, then I say, then I say to them, I say, I'm very un unhappy with Her Majesty the Queen. Because in my view, she should have told her husband firmly and frankly, don't encourage people worshipping you, Philip. Because I am the defender of the faith, not in you, but in <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. That's what the Queen should have done. So yes. I get a bit incensed about that. <laughs> oh, I'm really not, I'm, so I'm not happy with the Duke, and I'm not happy with the Queen. <laughs> and, you see, and it, it is a bit mad, but it's all based on a true story. Mm. Everything I've said, I've researched incredibly carefully. Right. And I know for a fact that the ambassador 
in that part of the world told Philip about the islanders who were worshipping him. And Prince Philip encouraged it because they actually sent him a pig killing club. And they said to him through the ambassador, if you will be photographed holding this pig killing club, that will show us that you really are the son of our volcano god. And he went along with it. Oh, man. And to me, you know, now, a lot of people who are postmodernists would say, whatever works for you, you know, um, if you want to worship the Duke of Edinburgh, fine. Mm. If you want to w worship a footballer like Maradona, and people do. And I then say, did you know that in Buenos Aires, Argentina, there is a church where they worship Maradona? And they all, in England, everyone knows who Maradona is. He was the most brilliant footballer who won the World Cup for Argentina. And in Argentina, there is a church where they worship Diego Maradona. So I just tell this to the students and they absolutely love it. Mm. And I say, please do me a favor. Um, if you think you're going to die or be, even before it, it's better, please don't put your faith in Diego Maradona mm -hmm. because he is a sinful man, just like you and me. Yeah. He struggles with eating too much. He struggles with alcohol he struggles with all these things yeah. why would you put your faith in him yeah put your faith in jesus because he really was who he said he was he came back from the dead and he can actually answer your prayers yeah. now yeah. what's interesting jason is they don't laugh at me they don't mock me because i've had i've got a really interesting what we call speech act mm. it's an interesting way of speaking about the world Mm -hmm. And I find the students come up to me and they say, oh, it's very, very interesting. And I was speaking to a, an Indian woman. I said, where, where are you from? And I started telling her about rat worship, where, because there's a temple in India where they worship rats. And in this temple, the rats have the very best food. They even have their own cook who <laughs> cooks them the most beautiful dainties for rats. And the rats live the life of old Riley which is an English expression for they have a wonderful life. And there are 20,000 of these rats and they're worshiped by the people in this village in Rajasthan. And I said to him, can I tell you, there are, now this is my, one of my techniques, Jason. I say, there are four ways of looking at rat worship. And I do this on purpose because it puts them at ease. That's a very important, it's disarming because I'm giving them options in the conversation, right? Ah. Now, the traditional evangelistic model wouldn't do this, but yeah. I think it really works. I say, some people say rat worship is just superstition because everything's physical. Uh, that's an atheist view, right? Everything's physical. Don't worship rats. Superstition. The second view is whatever works for you, I so you worship rats. I so respect mm. you. Mm. You are being authentic. That's another very common view. In fact, that's the most common view I find in England. Whatever works for you. Mm. The third view is the view that says you should worship rats because they are in some way divine. Mm. And if you worship the rat goddess, she will save you. She will rescue you. She will help you. And the Christian view is don't worship rats worship christ because he made the rats in the very beginning and then i explained to them colossians chapter one you know 
he is the image. And mm. and in fact, they're very interested because I'm giving them options, but I'm also announcing something very important about the gospel. Mm. And if you get it right, you don't get into arguments, Jason, with people. Yeah. You just go, you just go, oh, yeah, yeah. wow, that's interesting. I've never thought about this. Yeah. You see, yeah. I don't get them going, oh, you're religious. I go, I say, just go. And sometimes they say, can you, can you go over those views again? Can you explain to me those views again? They do it slightly differently. Mm-hmm. And people go, wow, it's amazing. And I say, yeah, well, You've got to understand that there are places in the world where people worship crocodiles. <laughs> and, and there are places in the world where they worship rats, cobras. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are places in the world where they worship a very famous cricketer called Sachin Tendulkar. <laughs> people worship many, many different things. And I think it's really important that we talk about this. What yeah. do we worship? Now, I then say to them, the biggest god today in our culture is money. Mm. money it's not it's not the only god but it's a powerful god Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know i can tell you thousands of people who worship money Mm -hmm. who exchange god for money Mm it just live for money and that's actually worse than worshiping rats i'm just (laughs) being provocative it's far worse to worship money than to worship rat worship is amateurish it's you know not really you know but to worship money was going to really ruin your life. <laughs> and so what I'm doing is I'm teaching them a Christian worldview. You know, yeah. But I'm doing it through the idea of the story. Now, the story is disarming. Yeah. Because they can't say to me, you're talking rubbish, because I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm an expert on rat worship. And they've never heard of it, you see. So yeah. they're ignorant. And I am pouring knowledge into their ignorant minds they recognize that i'm doing them a massive favor that's awesome then and that's how i see it i'm cocky and i'm cheeky and i say you know you lack knowledge (laughs) i'm here mark rock to give you knowledge i'm a font of wisdom and that's where i'm taking the mickey out of myself i'm I'm being a bit cheeky playful they love that (laughs) where do you i love i love like the thing, the most compelling part is that you, like you say, like you offer, you know, there's a marketplace of ideas. I really love that. And I could, I could instantly see how that, that disarms folks and whatnot, but I'm curious what, for those who are like all ears to you and they listen and they're like, okay, yeah, I have, I have been living into the story of money. What, what specifically do you invite them into when we're talking about the story of God? What, what's it an invitation unto? Is it just like, now you don't have to go to hell when you die or try hard not to like, you know, jerk off at nighttime? Like what, what's the goal of life? <laughs> That's very good. I, well, you have to remember that the conversations I have are snatched. They're with young people who are having a coffee, having a tea, with me and I'm not able to do the whole thing. Mm. I agree that discipleship is important. It's about, it isn't just about challenging the idols. Mm. It's about explaining the the biblical narrative. But the way I would do this is I would say that idols basically enslave you and you sacrifice to them. And the way I would present the gospel is the gospel is the good news that Christ sets us free from all the powers that enslave people. 
That, that's one way. That's one way that I would talk about the gospel. It, yes, of course, I, I believe in the atonement and I believe that he died on the cross for our sins. But my point of entry is with slavery is to say people are enslaved to things like these idols and they ruin your life. Mm. Mm. They destroy lives. Mm-hmm. But Christ has come to set us free from the power of sin, the power of idolatry, so that we're no longer slaves to these things. Yeah, We are set free to be fully human. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is an, is an important way of understanding that the gospel is the good news that we're set free to, to once again, this is very, you know, very Kuyperian, we're set free from the power of sin to once again be good stewards of God's earth, mm, to be good neighbors. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of like Kuyperian sort, the Dutch sort, how has Calvin Seerfeld like sort of shaped your ministry? Well, I, I met him when I when I studied at the Institute for Christian Studies years and years ago in the 80s. And um, I particularly liked Calvin Seerfeld. I liked his his um, his real knowledge, his love of the Bible and his knowledge of the Bible, but also his idea that every activity has what he calls an aesthetic aspect. That everything we do has got an imaginative dimension to it. Mm. So we can, we can unfold imagination in ways that are life-giving, you know, playing with our children, mm. having fun. Um, and that the aesthetic is part of God's shalom, God's you know, kingdom of justice and peace, that the aesthetic is the imaginative and it gives us joy. It gives us a sense of fun. Yeah. So when I say, you know, I'm going to be saying in a sermon about how I used to have a wheelbarrow and we used to go and play with my cousins in the woods with the rhododendrons in our wheelbarrow. And we had a wonderful time of just playing and having fun. And that's an aspect. Playing is an aspect of being human. And God, you know, there's a wonderful verse in Zechariah that talks about the young boys and girls playing in the streets of Jerusalem. And it's an image of shalom, but there's a sense of them being playing, having fun. And that's an important aspect of the creation. Now, some traditions can get eliminate this aesthetic and imaginative dimension. Yeah. Augustine, you know, I'm not. I'm not saying he was universally wrong. He said some good things. But in one of his earliest works, he says, I desire God and the soul, nothing else, nothing whatsoever. Mm. And that is stripped away the whole idea of a good creation. And what Zierveld helped me to understand is that everything has an aesthetic dimension. Mm. So teaching can have an imaginative dimension. Mm. Um, evangelism can have yeah. an aesthetic dimension and he has a way of defining the aesthetic uh, I think he changed but he said it's allusivity, it's where you are referring to lots of different things there's a richness about when you are being aesthetic mm. and so I've wanted to integrate what he has said about the aesthetic aspect which is one of these different irreducible aspects that Doivir talks about mm. And I think he's right to say it, it's it's a vital dimension of good teaching. Mm. 
of good communication. So when I'm on the streets, I want to embrace in the right way, the aesthetic. Many traditional evangelists don't do that. They just get out the Bible and they kind of talk at people. Yeah, yeah. And it has no aesthetic richness. Wow. Whereas what Zierveld has helped me to see, and I'm so grateful to him, is that everything we do, you know, where the way we interrelate uh, with our wives and husbands, with our friends, playing cards, everything has this aesthetic dimension. And if we are obedient to God, we will serve him faithfully in the imaginative. Yeah. So I think it's because evangelism has been denuded of a good backing in a good creation theology that it's become so awful and frankly, incredibly embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> and it is because the, the bad theology of snatching you off to heaven um, impacts the way people do evangelism. Yeah. And what in England it does, it turns everybody off doing evangelism. Mm -hmm. Because they somehow think, Jason, to be an evangelist, you have to basically strip away all the things that you enjoy, that are yeah. fun. Yeah. You have to get rid of that. Yeah, exactly. To be reductionist. Yeah. And a lot of evangelism can be very, very reductionist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's where Doivit is incredibly helpful. Because Doivy gives you a way of spotting the reductionism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there was a very famous poet called Charles Baudelaire, you know, a French poet, and he reduced everything to the aesthetic. He was a, a, a dandy and uh, he was a wonderful poet, but he saw everything in terms of art. Art is beautiful, art is wonderful. And that's a reductionism to the aesthetic. But then you get people in business who get rid of the aesthetic. And what Zierveld taught me is that you shouldn't overplay the aesthetic, nor should you devalue the aesthetic. It has its place. It's good. Mm. But it has to be integrated with other aspects, the ethical, mm -hmm. the economic, you know, the lingual. Mm -hmm. I found this incredibly helpful because it gave me the freedom to do mission in a much more enjoyable way. Yeah, yeah. And when you get it right, you actually enjoy it because yeah. if, you've got that, if you've got that story, and I was talking to a guy just here about a man in England. He's a famous actor and a, uh, and a footballer who said that he'd scored a goal in a game and he'd prayed to his grandfather, his dead grandfather, Arthur, that this would be the only goal of the game. And I said to him, what do you think about praying to dead people? And this guy was, you know, really interested in this conversation. And I was able to explain to him very basic teaching about why you shouldn't be praying to mm. a grand, a dead grandfather. Mm. Because I said, he, he's in his grave, he's dead. Whereas Christ has come back from the dead. Yeah. And he can answer your prayers. Oh, so it's a very simple segue, isn't it? From It's nothing cheesy. I go, here is a footballer who prays to his dead grandfather, right? And I say to him, what do you think about that? So I'm not talking at him. I'm inviting him into yeah. a conversation. Yeah. yeah. 
No, it's so good. This is extremely compelling, but I'm almost a little bit bummed. I feel like I just, I'm like a, uh, if, if I'm an aspiring drummer, I just heard like a wicked 12 minute beat down on the drums. I'm like, oh, what, what do I, how can I do this? Is there, can you give us like a, a, a least case scenario? Like, hey, you know, on how we, how we can move forward to this and sort of a best case scenario, like maybe with some resources that you might have? Well, I think the course that my, I've been working with, with my colleague, Patricia Gray, which is called Slave Chronicles and Dangerous Beliefs, Discipling Others Through Creative Storytelling. We tell 21 stories in a very, very simple way. Mm. Um, one is about John Newton, who, who was the guy who um, was a slave trader. He became a Christian and then he gradually became, became convinced the slave trade was evil. Mm -hmm. And he began to fight against the slave trade. We tell his story. Mm. We tell the story of William Wilberforce, but very simply in just a, a few lines, as if, you know, in a bubble, I am, I, my name is. And we tell stories about the Sultan of Morocco, who had 20,000 white and black slaves. It shocks people. Mm. that he was uh, a sultan who actually had white slaves. Some of them were kidnapped from England, mm. from Cornwall, which is in the west of England. Mm. So what we do is we take these stories and then we help people to, 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 to talk about God through the stories and give them a very simple introduction to materialism. Mm. Mm -hmm. that's, that's one. So it's, it's very basic, it's very simple, and it's a resource that will help you to tell stories. Now, if you're not a good storyteller, um, you, you don't have to be a good storyteller. All you've got to be able to do is to be able to talk reasonably intelligently about different situations. Slavery in, I know, uh, the third world, slavery in England, slavery in different places. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be able to understand how slavery isn't always an economic thing. It can be a spiritual thing. Mm -hmm. so i have a story about a young man in england who was an addict of taking selfies and he was taking 200 selfies a day and he couldn't get the right selfie and he was about well he was just about to kill himself and his mother found him and he's the first person to be called a selfie addict in England that's a very very intriguing story yeah but what you have to train people to do is to see what is the idolatry and what it is is a very simple idea it's about the cult of physical perfection mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a very simple idea that he wanted to look perfect and this is a kind of idolatry because he was on the point of actually committing suicide because he didn't think he looked perfect. Right. This is a, a fruit of living in a consumerist society. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's having that story and being able to talk intelligently about that story. That's what makes you good at mm -hmm. witnessing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to make this very earth fit for you, I was speaking on this, the streets and four people came up to me, three, um, 
old people and a young man. We got talking. And I told them a similar story about a girl in Bradford, which is very near to Leeds, who killed herself because she thought she was fat and ugly. And th these four people were really interested in this. They wanted to talk about it. So what I then did is I explained to them the worldview dimension, which is the idea of materialism, consumerism. Uh, and they really wanted to talk about this. I said, we have to connect this to famous people in our society, a woman called Cheryl Cole, who's well-known in England, spends a thousand pounds a day on looking perfect. She spends huge amounts of money on absolutely being perfect and yet she's depressed mm. because her legs aren't perfect mm. this is the cult of physical perfection it's a part of the consumerist worldview it's a part of materialism anyway i told them this half an hour later they came back and they said can we carry on this conversation you see because what i've done is i've given them real insight about yeah. our culture mm. it isn't about religious things it's about our world mm. what's happening to young people mm. Mm. the skill is having the story in the locker and then just being able to intelligently talk about it yeah gives you tremendous you know natural conversation mm. and what you find if you get good at this is people don't sneer you know, they, they go, well, this is fascinating. Why, why, why hasn't no one ever told me this? Yeah, yeah. And I say, it's, you've got to understand it's a religion. Mm -hmm. These people are, have you heard of the goddess Venus? Mm -hmm. Very simple. We all know who she is. She was the ancient goddess of beauty and sex. And I say people used to worship Venus in ancient Rome. People still worship her today. Cult of physical perfection. Yeah. And it ruins so many lives. Mm -hmm. destroys countless lives mm -hmm. whereas the gospel says that don't don't be obsessed by selfies don't be obsessed by how perfect you are accept yourself that you're made in god's image mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's very it segues in from the critique of the culture yes and that's what i think we have to do learn how to expose the culture Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. expose the culture and in, in england and the united states we we are dealing with by and large with a very consumerist worldview and everything is about consuming and i say sometimes to people you know um we consume nowadays people consume beliefs in the way they consume popcorn and beer mm -hmm. everything is there to be consumed even beliefs mm. I give an example of a girl who was speaking to my daughter years ago who said to my daughter, do you know, Hannah, I believe in reincarnation a bit. I believe in reincarnation a bit. It's like she's toying, isn't she, with, with this belief. It's like, oh, it's amusing. It entertains me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the, one of the spirits of, of postmodernism. Wow. And it's a very simple idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We play with, we, you know, we, it, we don't do things like the naked fakir was not a postmodernist. He was serious about his belief in reincarnation. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to 
come back as a rodent or a, or a shrimp. He wants to come back. Well, he wanted to find moksha. Yeah, that's yeah. not postmodernist. Whereas the little girl who says, "I believe," I think I believe in reincarnation. <laughs> a bit. Do you see what it is? Yeah. It's a m very very disturbing feature of our culture mm -hmm. where everything is to be consumed. And then I talk about people. Did you know that in human trafficking, people consume people, they buy and sell people. Why are they doing this? Let me tell you about Thomas Hobbes. Mm -hmm. Explain, Thomas Hobbes is very simple to understand. Right, right. You're just a machine, you have no value. If you're fat, 6.99, if you're thin, $2. You're only worth $2 if you're thin. If you're fat like me, $10 you'll get for me because you have no value apart from what the market says you have. Yeah, yeah. What is it? Where does this go to? Human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So then I'm able to say to people, I know a man in West Bengal who claims to have sold thousands of young girls. Mm -hmm. And he also admits to having murdered 400 girls when they tried to escape from him. Mm -hmm. And he has no problems with the police. Why? Because he bribes them. And in the sermon I'm working on, I say, let's imagine that he turns away from this and repents. How would that change the world? Mm. Imagine if the police officers he's bribing repented and stopped helping him. Imagine if um, journalists began to write about this, if somebody wrote a novel about this, they go on. This is Kuiper's idea of different spheres, but I earth it in a real story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I'm, all I'm doing is explaining to them Christian worldview, yeah. but through an interesting story. And I just analyze it. And that's the skill you need to have. Take an interesting thing, talk about it intelligently. Another one I use is an American woman called Anna Nicole Smith, who married, she was a beautiful woman of 26. She married a billionaire who was 89 years of age. Why? And it's because she'd made marriage into a commodity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's going on all, and she claimed to be a Christian mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So it's always having a story, a vignette, and then unpacking the dark side of it. Mm -hmm. This is the idolatry. So it's basically the story, attack the idol, because the idols cause misery. Yeah. Do you see that? When you commodify people, what does it lead to? Utter misery. Thousands of young women and children. Yeah. So you're always, you know, keeping it simple. Tell the story. Explain the worldview. And I, I don't use the word worldview. I go to the idol. This is where I'm different from some Christian people. I don't go into worldviews. Everyone got a worldview. No, I don't do that. I say, here's a human trafficker. He kills people. Yeah, that's good. Keep it simple. Keep it, keep it a bit focused on this is violent. What does he believe? And then I would say, what does he see when he sees a young woman? He just sees a thing. Yeah. A commodity, an object to consume. What, what do I see when I see her? I see a young woman who's made 
in the image and likeness of God. She is so loved that Jesus Christ died for her on the cross. I did did this once. Just by comparing the human traffickers' idolatrous worldview with what I believe. They don't give me any any kind of gist. They don't give me all that. They go, oh, I've never... I've never thought about that. Right. I've never thought about that. Because mm. what, what I'm doing that's different is I'm using a bit of humor. I'm a bit cheeky, but I'm unmasking the idol, which is what the prophets did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm simply unmasking the idol, and then I'm giving them an alternative. Yeah. That's all I'm doing. Unmask the idolatry, give them the, the alternative. But don't wrap it up in lots of complex words. Most people don't function at a, in a complex level. Yeah. They're not going to want to talk to me about Plato or Aristotle, but they will talk to me about the Columbine killers yeah. or targeting the human trafficker because it's really there. It hits you in the face. But then the way I see it, I'm doing them a favor. I'm not being aggressive. I'm doing them a favor because what I'm, this is where I've learned from Zirva. I'm giving them real insight about the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Zierveld once said to me, one of the ways to love your neighbor is to give them insight and understanding about the world. So that's what I try to do. Mm. I try to keep it as simple as I can. What I find people do, they, they go, wow, that's really interesting. You're a really interesting bloke. You see? But I'm able to, uh, very simple story, unmask the It's as simple as that. We came for salvation, we came for family, we came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to lead.